Welcome to Afros in the Diaspora. My name is Sarah. I am your host. And together we will vent, rant, laugh, and cry as we discuss the highs and lows of being an immigrant. Stay tuned for stories that will inspire, inform, entertain, and give hope. This is Afros in the Diaspora. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Afros in the Diaspora. Today, we have an honorable guest with us, Charles Andrew Payne. Charles is an accomplished actor, writer, stand-up comedian, motivational speaker. Like He has an incredibly extensive resume, um, and he you know, started out as a model, as a kid, and then grew into an and has been doing the thing ever since. And he, you know, he is a published writer and has produced for television and stage performances. Like he is really out there doing the thing. And we're just so happy and grateful to have him as a guest on the podcast today. Charles, it's your first time on this podcast. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm doing well, feeling great on this lovely Saturday morning. Thank you again for being a guest on Afros in the Diaspora podcast. You're welcome. Anytime. Anytime. Of course. Um, so, Charles, we're going to jump into some icebreakers. I'm mm-hmm. going to start with a riddle. Have you ever like had to answer riddles before? Oh, I've, I've got kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, here we go. Are you ready? I can repeat mm-hmm. the question if you want. Yep. You have about a minute, 60 seconds to answer. I'm going to get it wrong, so it's okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the confidence for me. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. Um, the more of these you take, the more appear behind you. What am I? The more you take, the more appear behind you. Yeah. Would you like a hint? Yes. Age, time. No. No, pretty okay. good, pretty good guesses though. <laughs> pretty good guesses. Uh, this is caused by movement. No, you're gonna have to help me out here. I'm terrible at these things. <laughs> you're gonna tell me the answer, and I'm gonna go, "What? Okay." <laughs> Footsteps. The oh. more steps you take, the more <laughs> behind you. I like my, I like my, I like my answer better. The more, the more, more years you use up, the more you have behind you. <laughs> I mean, that could also. That's also a really good answer to it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. You went practical. I was going all philosophical. Yeah, I mean, there. yeah, you were like, <laughs> let me apply the wisdom of my age. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because I'm at that point in life where you kind of, it dawns on you that you may have more years behind you than you have in front. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, okay. okay. So let me ask another question. Another okay. icebreaker. Mm-hmm. What is the worst job that you've ever had? <sighs> the worst job that I've ever had. The very worst. I know you're an you're an artist, you're an actor, so you've probably yeah. had day jobs. Oh yeah, I always had day jobs, but mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't know. I think that I wouldn't say it was the worst job. I'd say probably the most challenging job. It was the very first job I ever had. I took on a paper route that was probably way too big for me, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that <laughs> um, back then you delivered papers you know, on a bike and you threw them at people's houses and what have you. Yeah. But my load of papers. I was 10 when I took this on. Oh, wow. It was so heavy sometimes that I'd have to take a run and start on my bike 
when I had all the papers in the in the basket in the front, and then hop on the bike because I couldn't actually lift it up. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was the, but it was the most challenging job because I didn't have the body strength at the time, but I managed. But yeah. When I did give up that paper route, they split it into two. Oh, <laughs> that was after you left? <laughs> after I left, they split it into two. So, yeah, that was the job. I'm really curious. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, well, as soon as I, as soon as I grow up, I'll let you know. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think I no. I've always I'm I'm doing everything I set out in life to do, so I'm okay with that. But I mm. I do say that all the time. You know, it's like when now that I'm all grown up, it'd be nice if I could figure out what I want to do with myself. So yeah, I think <laughs> a, a lesson a lesson that I I learned not too long ago, maybe earlier this year, was that nobody has it figured out. Everyone is still freaking well, trying. I yeah. I will tell you this, Sarah. Look, I'm I'm gonna be 57 in uh, 16 days. Um, oh, happy birthday! Thank you. Um, I've been doing an unofficial poll when I meet people because in my in my day job, I you said you know being an actor and everything, you always have a day job. And I I grew up in the business world in sales, and I I've talked had the pleasure of talking to CEOs and CIOs and people who own businesses, and I ask everybody. Is the job that you're currently doing what it is you set out to do in life? And I literally think in 30 some odd years of doing this unofficial poll, I've met 10 people who said, yes, I'm doing exactly what I set out to do. Everybody else is always, they ended up where they are, fluke, accident. I started doing this and I got to do this and then I got promoted to do this. (laughs) Not a lot. Everybody's still, you know, like you said, trying to figure it out. Wow. That is alarming. No, you know, over 30 years who said, yeah, I'm doing exactly what I set out to do. Most people set out down one path and life takes you in a different path. Myself, exactly. You know, I, I am, I, I, I set out to be a developmental psychologist. That's what I went to university for. Okay. But I always done other things on the side. And then I, I remember I was talking to a, career counselor and saying, you know, I don't know if this psychology path is exactly what right for me because I went out and did a bit of a practicum and didn't really enjoy it. It was too emotionally draining, et cetera. And she said, so tell me a little about yourself. I said, well, you know, what do you, she says, what do you do now? How did you pay for school? And I said, well, I'm an actor, I'm a model. Um, I also work in, in sales. And she said, stop right there. My husband is a salesperson. And she goes, did you know in, in any large corporation, the sales department's usually the highest paid. And I said, oh, what kind of are we talking about? She told me what her husband was making. And I said, that's more than a psychologist makes. She goes, I know. And she says, you have an aptitude for sales and a skill for sales. You ever thought of doing that as a profession? And I went, huh. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I ended up. I I worked in, in, in enterprise, corporate enterprise sales. And here's the fun thing about sales is that you get to call your own hours. You get to set up your own calendar, which works out great for an actor. Exactly. Because when I have an audition, I just booked it into my my schedule. Yep. When I did my audition, came back. When I booked a gig, I took some vacation time. When shoot shoot my movie, come back. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. How amazing is that? Maybe you can (laughs) give me the the plug later. (laughs) 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 oh that's awesome that's so good to hear so charles i know a little bit about your story but i I just Mm -hmm. want you you have such an amazing story and i just want you to share it i just would like for you to share it oh absolutely so 
let's go right back to the beginning. As I mentioned, I, I was born in Grenada, which is a small island in the Caribbean for people who don't know. It's a very small island. I think the population is about 110,000 people. That's 13 miles wide, 26 miles long. It's not very big. Um, it's one of three islands. There's Grenada, Caracou, and Petit Martinique. Um, my mother was from Caracou. My father's from Grenada. Um, my story is interesting in the sense that my parents, I'm the product of a one night stand. My parents met each other at a church dance, had their little fun and result was me. <laughs> they were never in a relationship. They were never a couple. Um, my father left the country shortly after that. He won a, he won a, a, a what the, back then they had what they call, um, um, immigration visas. So you put your name in and, um, if you get selected, then you, then you can immigrate out of the country. He, he won that visa. He was 21 years old and, um, and, and literally took the opportunity and had a tr three, three choices. He could go to the London or he go to England, he could go to, to the United States or he can go to Canada and he chose Canada, right? Didn't know mm -hmm. much about Canada, but that's where he ended up 21 years old. He was gone. So I, I was left behind with my, my um, paternal grandparents. And there's a long story about how I got there, but I won't bore you with that. But suffice it to say, my mom was only, she was 15 when I was born. She was young. Mm -hmm. So she didn't raise me. She didn't have the capability to raise me. So I was given mm -hmm. to my dad's family. And interestingly enough, she put on my birth certificate, father unknown. So when my father, who was in Canada now, mm -hmm. trying to make his way 21 years old, mm -hmm. um, decided, you know, he wanted me to come to live with him. He couldn't get me because it said father unknown. So mm. I've been, I am legally adopted by my biological father. I had to go through the entire adoption process. You know, wow. <laughs> so um, eight and a half years old, um, had lived in my life happily in Grenada. I'm the youngest of 14 people in a three room house. Um, you know, to say we were poor would be an understatement. Um, hard times, but fun times. I didn't know I was poor till I moved to North America, right? We were happy, you know? Grenada <laughs> <laughs> is a tropical place surrounded by beaches and it's it's the island of spice. Everywhere you go, you can smell the different spices, nutmeg, mace, fruit trees in my mm -hmm. backyard. So you never really went hungry, yeah, right? So I didn't yeah. know I was poor. I was happy. I had a bunch of cousins and stuff to play. So when I was, when my grandmother came to me when I was, you know, eight and a half years old and said, you know, that your father wants you to come live with him. And his, he was, my dad at this time had, met a woman and had gotten married and I had a baby sister that I didn't know about. Um, you know, I didn't have a choice. I was told I was going to going to Canada. Never mm -hmm. heard about Canada. Um, everybody talked about Canada and all they'd ever said is how cold Canada was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. So, <clears throat> um, so my dad had bought a ticket and I was packed up. Here's the fun part of this story, you know, and, um, Keep in mind that I'm also a comedian, so I found the humor in it. So mm -hmm. everybody always talked about Canada as how Canada was so cold. And so when I was told, when they, when you know, in the village that we lived in, it was found out that <clears throat> I was getting to immigrate to Canada. My father sent for me, and as you know, um, I'm sure you know. In in most, unfortunately, that my story is not unique to the Caribbean experience, <clears throat> whereby. You know, that usually the parents have immigrated first, then they left their kids behind. So all of my dad's brothers and sisters have done the same thing that we, my family is spread out around the world. I got people in Europe. I got people in, in the United States, people all across Canada, but they all left their, their kids behind so they could go and 
seek their fortune and then send for us. So when I said mm-hmm. I was one of the youngest of 14 people living in a three-room house, it was some younger aunts and uncles and a whole bunch of cousins, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. But when I was when it was discovered that I was leaving, people treated me like I was a, a special. Like they, everybody would come and say, oh, you're so lucky. You're getting to oh. leave. You're getting to go to Canada. I had no idea. So on the day, you know, and all I heard about was Canada was cold and growing up in the Caribbean, which is a tropical place, you know, we considered it cold when it drops down to 27 degrees Celsius, but, you know, (laughs) I had no idea. So, but my, my, here's the funny part. My dad had sent some clothing for me to wear, Mm -hmm. um, which I call my Canada clothes. So Mm -hmm. on the day that I had to leave, my grandmother, I don't know, he'd sent instructions and maybe she didn't understand, but my grandmother, you know, she was the matriarch and whatever granny says, you follow. So she dressed me in all my Canada clothes. He had sent, you know, wool socks, winter Mm -hmm. boots, because I was leaving in January, right? right? Long johns, top and bottom, a pair of corduroy pants, a sweater, a scarf, mm-hmm. a toque, yeah. and a winter jacket. My grandmother dressed me up in all of those clothes. All of them? <laughs> <laughs> and told me, you know, that where I was going was cold, and so I should make sure that I keep everything on so I didn't get cold. I'm eight and a half. I didn't know. I followed her instructions. Mm-hmm. And then we, we went to the airport. By this time, I'm sweating. Yeah. Things running down my face. (laughs) (laughs) And I was traveling as what's known as an unaccompanied minor Mm -hmm. because my dad only bought one ticket. So you go through customs and what have you, and they hand you over to a stewardess or flight attendant that they're they're called now. And she took me onto the plane. So I walked through, walk across the hot tarmac and up the stairs. And to this day, my grandmother used to say to me, she was so proud of me because I walked so proudly up the stairs. But what she didn't know is if I had turned around and looked back, I wouldn't have made it to the top of those stairs. I was terrified. I was scared. I had never been on an airplane before, never even seen one, right? I mean, Mm. when I say we grew up, poor i mean literally we lived in a three-room shack with no indoor plumbing no hot and cold running water none of that stuff right Mm. so it's like going from the 1800s into the 21st century right i mean half no concept of that Mm -hmm. and she sat me down you know um on the airplane i don't know what ticket my dad had bought me but she sat me up front next to her where she could keep an eye on me so i didn't know my first airplane ride i was in first class i didn't know (laughs) (laughs) and and she as she was she she told explained to me that she was going to look after me and now you have to know sarah there is no direct flight from grenada to vancouver you flew from grenada to barbados barbados to toronto toronto to vancouver 19 and a half, almost 20 hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With layovers and what have you. Yeah. And so my first, so I'm sitting there and she said, she said to me, here's the funny part. She said to me, put on your seatbelt as she's walking away. And I had no idea what she was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Lord. I sat there and went, what is that? So, and you know, now when, 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 uh, you know, You've been on a plane, of course. What's the first thing they do after the plane takes off? They do the safety announcements. And what's the first mm-hmm. thing they show you how to do? Wear how the seatbelt. Put belt. on your seatbelt. And first yeah. worlders, first worlders, 
um, you know, they kind of roll their eyes going, you know, why are you telling me how to put on a seatbelt? I've been putting one on since I was two or three years old. But for, and that's why now I tell people all the time, that's not, that messaging is not for you. Yeah. It was for well, it's me. useful to someone else. Yeah. Ignorant party of one going, oh, that's what she's talking about. <laughs> so yeah, four, four different flights, 20 some odd hours. And um, that was, it was interesting for me because that was my first, like I said, it's like going from the 1800s into the 21st centuries. There were a lot of firsts for me on that flight in the sense mm. that the stewardess came by and, you know, they usually hand out drinks back then, you know, that stuff, you know, the, the cookies and the peanuts and what have you. And she came by and she asked yeah. me if I wanted something to drink and I didn't know. So she just kind of made the decision for me and poured me a glass of Coca-Cola. I'd never had anything outside of water and natural fruit juice. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so I was introduced to, to Coca-Cola at eight and a half years old. Man, that was fun. Wow. I drank that and um, asked for more and asked for more and asked for more. <laughs> and eight and a half, she just kind of gave it to me. Yeah. And then I forgot the important thing. See, um, <laughs> that which goes in needs to come out. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yes. And again, and the reason I tell you this, you know, it's it's just you understand that the huge transition that I had to adapt to mm-hmm. is that I need to go to the bathroom. But back home, bathroom for us was one of two choices. You either use a latrine, which is literally a hole in the ground with some clapboard boxes around it, mm-hmm. or wood around it, or use a tree. but i'm on an airplane i have no idea Uh right Mm -hmm. and i'm terrified now because i'm thinking you know i'd heard the pilot say we're thirty-seven thousand feet above the ground and i look out and all i can see is clouds Clouds. so i'm thinking to myself you know where do people go in a bathroom in an airplane is it is it a latrine is it a hole in the ground Thirty-seven thousand feet above the ground that's how my little eight and eight and a half year old brain is thinking because yeah. i don't see no trees <laughs> yeah. and so i push the help button and the stewardess comes and i say to her i need to use a tree and she looks at me and i said and she says what and i said i need to use a tree and she's looking at me confused still and i said no i have to go pee and she says why didn't you say that she takes my seatbelt off marches me down right mm-hmm. and the whole time she's marching me down the aisle towards it i'm thinking oh god oh god oh god if it's a latrine and it's a hole, I'm going to fall in 37 feet above the ground. <laughs> and she puts me in, in, in the, the and, and uh, closes the door. And then I heard her say, you know, you need to, you need to lock the door. So I turned around, thank God I could read and mm-hmm. saw where the lock was. And I lock it. You know what happens when you lock the door mm-hmm. in the bathroom, mm-hmm. the overhead lights come on. Come on. Yes. I'd never seen electricity before. Never seen overhead lights before. <laughs> so eight and a half years old um i what do i do i'm hopped up on sugar <laughs> and i'm i'm an eight-year-old so mm-hmm. of course i start playing with it you know you flick it back and forth the lights oh, go on and, man. Off, right? and i hear i hear her say stop playing with the lights <laughs> <laughs> okay so i did Right, lock the door, lights come on. I'd never seen that before. I was cool. And then I'm looking around because I'd never been in a bathroom like that before. And those are very confusing. Thank God mm-hmm. for pictograms and the fact that I can read. And I'd never seen a toilet mm-hmm. before. I'm looked, I'm used to a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which, by the way, none of us kids would use the latrine unless we had to because 
one of my cousins went to use the bathroom late at night one night and tripped and fell in. So all us kids are terrified. Mm. <laughs> so I'm terrified. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I figured it out. And then, you know, there's, there's a little sign that says to wash your hands. And I go to this, you know, what looked like a sink. I figured out that was a sink because there's a little pictogram of somebody. And I didn't again. Never seen a sink before. We mm-hmm. we didn't have indoor plumbing and hot and cold running water, any of those things. I mean, most mornings we we marched the five miles down to the river with whatever containers you could you could bring. If you were old enough to carry something, that's where you went and mm-hmm. you filled that up. And that was drinking water and water for the animals and for wash. I and mean, most of the time you would bathe in the river, yeah. right? And yeah. that was it. So I turned the knob and water came. Eight and a half years old. Are you kidding me? This is miraculous. This is. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, of course, being eight years old, hopped up on Coca-Cola sugar. I start playing with playing the water. Playing with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, hear, and I hear again, what are you doing in there? Stop playing with the water. And I'm like, man, is this, can she see inside of here? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so, and again, now I've got wet hands and I'm looking around and, the, oh, you know, there's different types of paper and stuff in there. And, figured out what paper towels were, right? To grab my hands, never seen that before either. And so that was my my first introduction to what I would call 21st century living, which was, mm-hmm. it was all new to me. I had to learn to adapt quickly, mm-hmm. right? And then we finally, we, had, we I, you know, so did that, but every, tri- every, every new leg of the journey, I was a little bit more knowledgeable. you know on the next leg again don't drink as much coke when she offers you something to drink see (laughs) or or you have to go to the bathroom you know it's not a surprise now i don't have to ask her i kind of figured out where it was got the lay of the land Mm -hmm. did that landed in vancouver finally very tired Mm -hmm. and um met my ready-made family my father my baby sister who was three at the time yeah and Mm -hmm. my stepmother now, which was again, you know, such a weird experience. And I got to ride in a car for the first time. And I've been in one before. So we get in the car. And of course, my little three year old sister says, um, you know, you're supposed to put your seatbelt on. And again, I went, oh, now I know what that is. <laughs> but still, still a surprise because, of course, she gets in, sits down in there, and puts her seatbelt on because she's three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eight and a half. I don't have that knowledge base to draw from. Thank God for the the, the demo on the plane. I kind of knew what it was, but the car seatbelt is different. It's different. <laughs> yes, it's different. Yeah. Took me a few tries to get that right, yeah. and she's looking at me like I'm stupid because <laughs> it's something that's natural and you know that she is used to. Used that's, to. that's that's her foundational base of knowledge. That's what she grew mm-hmm. up with. Same thing when we arrived in the house is that you know electric lights. And having a bedroom to myself, mm-hmm. because growing up at home, we slept six, seven people in a room mm-hmm. on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in a bedroom by myself, right? That was a novel experience. It was scary. It was strange. I didn't understand. Everything smelled different. Mm-hmm. Everything looked different. Everything, you know. And I arrived on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. The Saturday, the Sunday morning. My dad, you know, so introduced to, you know, this your dad. I didn't know my dad. This was my first time meeting my dad. 
Mm-hmm. Right? He left, be- you know, before I was even born, he was gone. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Had a new, didn't know what to call her, stepmother. And I have a sister, all mm-hmm. new people to me. I'm used to a lot of people around me, but I'm in a house with three other people. And it's a big house, you know, and I have big enough for me to have my own room and all new clothes because in Grenada, all my clothes were hand me downs, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yes. So I didn't understand that. But on the Sunday morning, my dad, you know, t- told me to come with him, put me in the car, and he drove and he showed me where my school was going to be because mm-hmm. I'm going to be going to school because I came in the middle of the school year in January. Yeah. Come the Monday, they signed me up for school. He drove me to show me where the school was. Then we drove back to the house and then he walked with me to show me how to, because I was going to have to walk myself to school. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn that very quickly, what landmarks to look for. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he took me to the school on the Monday morning. On the Monday morning, he walked with me to the school to show me, mm-hmm. you know, introduced me to the principal signed me up and then the, you know, he said goodbye and the principal took me down the hallway to a classroom, walked me into the classroom and here's my first experience with that I had to struggle with for some time. Yeah. All my documentation says Charles Andrew Payne. Mm-hmm. Principal walks me in his class, introduces me and says, class, you have a new student joining you today. Everybody I'd like you to meet, Chuck. Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't your dad just introduce you to her as Charles? Yep. Oh my goodness. And she so I was introduced to all my new classmates as Chuck. And that was a name I could not get rid of until I got to high school. I was struggling with that, you know. And again, I looked around to a sea of white faces and me. Hmm. I was the only black kid in my class. Matter of fact, I was um the only black kid in my school, you know. 800 kids and me and um i'm used to looking when you leave your house in grenada pretty much everybody looks like you yeah now i go to canada nobody looks like me i was a novelty to them they were a novelty to me exactly there was more of them than there was of me um i was given the wrong name (laughs) oh my god that makes me so mad yes um i had an accent and mm-hmm. I dressed different because mm-hmm. Grenada is a British colony. Mm-hmm. We were raised on the British system. Our school is on the British system. So we didn't have grades. We had forms, right? Yep. Um, turns out, because I went to school on the British system, I was a little ahead of them. And so after two weeks, I was moved to a different class. Mm-hmm. Moved up one. <clears throat> um, they didn't like me. I didn't fit in. They never really been exposed to a black person before except for Mm -hmm. what they saw on television Mm -hmm. that was the beginning of what i would call a period in my life i call the trauma years oh my goodness i was bullied on a daily basis um it didn't help that right around that time this was i think 1975 1976 the TV show Roots came out. The movie, mm-hmm. you know, about the the story, you know, about the slave Kinte who was stolen from Africa, brought over as a slave, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, these kids mm-hmm. were watching this show. Mm-hmm. And guess what? 
There's one kid in their school who looks like these people on television. And the bullies decided they wanted to play a game at recess and what have you. Slave and master. Well, guess you know how that plays out. Oh, Lord. Yes. That was my trauma period, literally being bullied, being told your name is not Chuck, it's Kunta Kinte and oh. Toby and being beaten and chased. And I, I got to be very adaptable and sneaky. So, you know, towards what, the end of school. What did the authorities of the school say? Did you ever like report anything like this? We didn't do that stuff back then. Hmm. Things are different here. Things are different now, right? Hmm. Um, you know, if you reported it, you, you know, they basically said kids are being kids, you know, right. Um, I was, I didn't necessarily bring it to my parents' attention. I probably should have in hindsight, but Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of internalize and figure out how to adapt and do your own thing. So I would, I would, you know, after lunch, sometimes I would, I would just go and hide and eat lunch in the bathroom. Um, there was a really nice gentleman that was kind of a savior to me Hmm. in that um, he was the school janitor. And I think he might've realized what was happening. He was East Indian. Hmm. And he would sometimes invite me to have lunch with him in the janitor's office. He didn't say anything to me. He just said, I see you eating lunch by yourself. Come have lunch with me. And so we got to be, you know, and he would talk to me and stuff like that. And he, he didn't actually upfront acknowledged it. He just kind of did this. He was very kind to me that way. Oh, that's amazing. Because what I would do is, you know, and like I said, after lunch, I'd pack all my stuff up and have it ready. And instead of leaving my knapsack and my coat in the cloakroom, I would put it under my desk. Mm-hmm. And then just watch the bell, watch the clock. And as soon as the bell rang, I was out the door and I was running home. Mm-hmm. And the kids would chase me. One time they chased me and they beat me up in my own backyard. In the backyard. <laughs> yeah, they got they caught up to me at home. There was nobody home that you to understand. My parents were poor. Both my parents worked. My sister went to a, a daycare and a preschool and then daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was what's known back then as, as a latchkey kid, right? You had your key, your house key mm-hmm. on a on a string that you wore, you know, and you put it under your clothes and you don't show anybody and everything. So I would mm-hmm. come home and there'd be nobody home yet. So I'd run home, <clears throat> right? Mm-hmm. And they caught me. In my front yard, I went into the backyard. They beat me. There was four of them. Put a beat down on me, you know, um, because that's what kids do. They're bullies, right? Yeah. That was my daily experience. Now, the positivity that came out of that is um, that was every day. I would just be out the door and running. Well, so happened that the um, this is this is me. I think I was in grade four at the time. Mm-hmm. So grade four, five, six, seven were pure hell for me in Canada. Mm. But the upside, there's always a positive. And one of those times I was running and the school track PE teacher, who also was a track coach, saw me running. Came up to me, the school the next day, and he said, he didn't see the kids chasing me, but he said to me, I think you should join the track team. Because he saw me running. (laughs) You were training and you didn't even know it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I had no idea. So I didn't. So, of course, you know, he talked to my parents. They said, yes, I joined the track team. Mm -hmm. And I was very good at it. Mm. 
and you know I, I my specialties is one 100 200 400 to four by one and the four by four mm-hmm. I started setting, setting records Ooh. I was I was that fast then of course because you're 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 now a quote-unquote track star in the school and school is winning mm-hmm. all of a sudden everybody who ignored me or didn't pay attention to me or you know were bullying me want to be friends with me yeah that's crazy adaptability i had to learn how to figure it out because it was all so new things that they took for granted i had to learn on the spot there was colloquialisms mm-hmm. and things that in tv shows they talked about and I had no idea because i didn't watch tv at home we had a tv at home but we didn't really necessarily watch a lot of tv my parents are very pro-education mm-hmm. and i'm a bit of a book nerd anyhow when i say to mm-hmm. you that books saved my life mm. My head was always buried in a book. It was a great escape for me to to live vicariously through the different characters and time mm. travel. I love books and mm. the answers to life came to me. My parents, um, you know, had spent money on um, the, the old school internet from back in the day, mm-hmm. Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. <laughs> yep. we, had the whole, we had the whole set. <laughs> yeah. And being the voracious reader that I was, I would literally go through them and read them one at a time and learn new things and mm-hmm. um, reading autobiographies, learning about, I mean, so I actually got the book for the show Roots and read mm-hmm. Roots, the book and understood it now. Oh, okay. Right. Cause I hated yeah. that show because yeah. that show was the bane of my existence, <laughs> yeah. but I read it and I, I learned about, it. learned about my history, which no one had taught me. I didn't know mm-hmm. what slavery was, never heard of it. So mm-hmm. that sent me down a rabbit hole to understand, mm-hmm. was there slavery? Slavery was where I came from in Grenada. I didn't know that's how black people ended up in the Caribbean. We didn't read that. We're not indigenous to there. Yep. <laughs> right? You're African. We're African. Yep. We were brought there, you know, and so that traced it back for me that, you know, my, on my, on my grandfather, on my grandmother's side, we're Nigerian. What? <laughs> Are you my brother, brother? <laughs> yes, yes. How amazing. Yeah, I didn't oh, know, wow. right? And so when you start asking questions, you understand that, you know, my, you know, great-great-grandfather, or something, you know, came came over as a slave mm. from Nigeria. On my grandfather's side, he's he was part Scottish and part Black. Mm. Okay. On my mom's side, I'm, I'm, I'm part... Um, indigenous Arawak, right? Mm. The indigenous people. From, so I'm a Heinz 57 kind of thing, right? But you didn't know your own history, right? <laughs> right? Wow. Didn't know that we came as slaves. Didn't know that, you know. And in Grenada, like in the Caribbean, everybody, we there was no racism that I was cognizant of at my young age. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd seen white people before. I'd seen Chinese people. I'd seen East Indian people, but black people. But we all just called ourselves West Indian. Mm. Right? Everybody had yeah. an accent. Everybody looked and talked the same. So we were all West Indian. The white people were tourists. We understood that. You'd mm-hmm. see them in the marketplace. My grandmother had a stall in the marketplace. So I'd see them, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I didn't necessarily interact with them. Then I'm in Canada and they're all around me, but they don't sound like the people that I am used to. Yeah. And they don't treat me because no one ever, I didn't know that being black was a negative thing. Yep. The color of my skin was the color of my skin. I was proud of it. My grandmother always used to say, here's a funny story for you. So I told you we'd go down to the river yeah, right, and we'd bathe. Now, 
the younger ones, my grandmother would bathe us and then dry us. And then she put this concoction on us that aloe vera, I, I asked her later what it was, aloe vera, lanolin, and Vaseline. And she put that all over you. And then she'd look at you and say, look at you. So pretty, pretty black and shiny. Oh, <laughs> right? that's awesome. So that's the positivity that came to me for the color of my skin. Hmm. Then I come to, to Canada only to find out that because of the color of my skin, I would be treated differently. I would be looked down upon. I would be given less opportunities. And again, mm. here's the thing that Black families do that they should never do, but it's true. They're just setting you up for the reality of the existence that you're going to live. Mm. I was told on a repeated basis that I had to work hard, mm. harder than anybody else, because my dad would always say, because you're Black, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Hmm. To this day, I struggle with that because I don't think that's a, I know their intention behind it. Yeah. But the truth of that is how motivating is that to know that you're going to have to work twice as hard as your peers and you will only get half as much as they get. (laughs) Right. But I've talked to other black people and they said, yeah, my parents told me the same thing. Mm. Right. You always have to be exemplary. You always have. So that's how I was raised is that, that I was always going to have to be faster, stronger, smarter. And education was the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. Education, yeah. education, education. So I, I was a bookworm. I buried myself in, in knowledge and understanding. I said, books saved my life because it exposed me to a broader world, mm-hmm. exposed me to how, you know, I always say that we, as people of color who live in, in a foreign land, where everybody's different than you, we actually have them at a disadvantage. Because not only do we have to know our own culture, we have to know theirs inside out and backwards in order to negotiate and navigate our way through. Mm -hmm. We have them at a disadvantage because I know more about them and how they live than they know about me Mm -hmm. and how I live because they didn't Mm -hmm. take the time to learn it, but I had to learn theirs. So now I'm smarter because I know how you work. I know how you think. I know how the things you take for granted Mm -hmm. that I think are of value and I know how to work my way through your system Mm -hmm. and how to disarm you. You know, I'm sure Mm -hmm. as a black woman, you've heard the term code switching. Oh my God. We are masters of code switching. Oh yes, 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 (laughs) yes, 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 yes. hundred percent. And we are chameleons put us in any environment because we had to learn how your culture works. Yeah. We just change our color and blend in. Yeah, learn to but, not be the other, not draw, you know, unwanted attention to yourself, not, you know, yeah. And, and it's, 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 but Sarah, it's exhausting. Oh, yes, it is. And it's confusing. As a young, I didn't know my own history and my own culture because my parents insisted that I learn to speak like the people around me. Mm. So I, I had to lose my accent mm-hmm. very quickly. Because that mm-hmm. they figured out that assimilation was a good way for adaptation, mm-hmm. right? Even though my father been in the country for however he is, he still has the strongest accent. So does my mother, but my sisters and I do not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We mm-hmm. learn to speak like the people around us, so that mm-hmm. we blend it in. When we're home, we switch back. We, you know, my accent comes on when I'm around my people. No problem. I switch oh back yeah, hundred no percent. Yes. You learned how to be, but there was a problem that comes with that is that being the only black person, we were the only black family in our neighborhood. I was the only black kid in my school. 
I learned how to adapt, how to walk, talk, speak, blend in with them, even like the music that they like. Because when I started to make friends, they were in a rock and roll and heavy metal. So I listened to that, but I was Motown at home. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and you learn, so you, you, there's a duality that comes with your existence because you're not exactly 100% yourself ever. Oof, that is so true. <laughs> yeah. That is so true. And that's painful. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, so dealing with the, with the, with the bullying and the abuse and that stuff. And, you know, yes, in hindsight as an adult, now, when I look back on that time, it's different now. I should have told my parents sooner, Mm. should have gone to the teachers sooner, but instead I rolled with it Mm. and I adapted with it. And then it changed a bit when I started to, you know, play sports, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's so stereotypical that you're, you're black, you're good at sports and that's why they love yeah. you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then as time moved on, more black people moved into my neighborhood and more black people in our culture. But here's the thing. I had been raised for all intents and purposes, very white. Mm. And so then I go among black people and there were new black kids and they would say to me, you do know you're black, right? Oh. And I didn't know what they were talking about because I was just living my life and adapting to be who I am. Mm-hmm. And then there was a you know friend of mine, his family moved from Florida. Mm-hmm. And we in school together, we got to be friends. And he would say to me, man, you were the whitest black person I've ever met. Just because <laughs> of the way that you would speak? Because of the way I speak, the way I dress, the way I conducted myself because mm-hmm. I had gotten so buried into the assimilation. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like I'd lost my blackness. <laughs> Ooh. Right? Didn't know my history. Didn't, you know, we didn't necessarily even eat West Indian food at home. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I go to my friend's house and his family from Florida, but they actually immigrated to from Jamaica to Florida. So they, they at his house, they ate Jamaican food, you know, oxtail and mm-hmm. ackee and sawfish and all that stuff. Yeah. Go to his house for dinner. I have no idea what I mean. Oh. <laughs> right? They're serving me West Indian food and I'd forgotten it. I didn't oh. know what it was. So I had to relearn my own culture. So that again sent me down a rabbit hole where, because he was talking about stuff I didn't understand, talking about mm-hmm. civil rights in the in the United States, which I didn't know about, didn't understand. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all of these things. And so again, books saved my life you if i don't know Open i went to the encyc- i went to the encyclopedia britannica then i go to the library to me being in a bookstore is how christians and religious people must feel when they go to church mm. bookstore is my haven I, i'm at home because <laughs> wow, all awesome. the knowledge in the world is right there and yeah. anything you need to know you can find in a book you can the librarian was my good friend i want to know about this and you know do you have any books on it? and so i read the autobiography of malcolm x i read roots i read you know martin luther king understood the black civil rights movement I understood then about the underground railroad and how there is more black people in the eastern coast of, of Canada than there is in the western coast because that's where they came to on the other mind blown mm. rediscovering my identity mm-hmm. and then I went through a period I was a teenager by now I'm 16 15 16 years old and I'm reading all of these stories 
um, Eldritch Cleaver, Soul on Ice, made me so angry. And I became what's not what I would call, I went through my angry black man phase. <laughs> because the injustice of it became real. Yeah. And then I tied it to the parallel of how I was living and how I was treated and how I'm still treated. Mm-hmm. The anger that came with that. Were you able the, to at any point communicate or have a conversation with your your father about his, like the reality of his experiences as a black man as well? He, <clears throat> yeah. And here's the problem. My dad is not a very well-educated man. He left okay. early. I think he only has a grade seven education. Okay. Not necessarily a big reader, mm-hmm. but I had to I had to distance myself from my father's life perspective only because he was permanently an angry black man. Oh. He would always say he could see racism everywhere. Whereas I was trying to walk a neutral path, he could see racism. Well, they only treat you like that because you're black. When you go into a store, they're following you around because you're black. I'm mm-hmm. like, that was kind of bred into me. Mm-hmm. And he, he had bad experiences. And mm-hmm. that was his frame of reference. He came here by himself at 21. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anybody here. Probably went through the same assimilation type problems that I did. Had difficulty mm-hmm. finding a job. Had difficulty finding a place to live. All of those things was Mm -hmm. the lens in which he looked at life and the lens in which he was trying to raise me as a young black man, Mm -hmm. right? So anything bad happened to you, it was because of racism in his mind, right? It's because Mm -hmm. you're black. And he'd say all the time, because you're black, they're going to treat you this. When you go there, you probably won't get it because you're black. So again, you got to work twice as hard Mm -hmm. to get half as much. much. (laughs) So that was ingrained in me. And so then when I, I started reading and learning about the broader diaspora, the broader um, <clears throat> world and the black experience, mm-hmm. some of it was relevant, some of it didn't happen, but it still angered you, right? None of it, slavery didn't make sense to me. The um, you know civil rights movement, the Jim Crow, all that stuff. And I talked to him about it and he says, yeah, that happens here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he told me, you know, and then I and then <clears throat> I got into the artistic world, and I met some some gentlemen in my life who were men, black mentors to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's an actor in Vancouver who who's been a, a fantastic, you know, influence on me. I don't even know if, if he knows that his name is Blue Man Kuma, mm-hmm. right? Fantastic influence on me. Blue is a, is a singer, jazz musician, and actor. There was another cat. He's passed away now. William Taylor, also a, a singer, and they they shared stories with me that that I'd read about in books, but actually it happened to them. Mm. You know, William told me, you know, being being part of a, a a band, and your name is on the marquee, but you can't go in the front door for the gig. You oh, have to go yeah. through the kitchen. Yeah, you do your gig and then you leave. leave they said the that kitchen. was. Yeah, that was their experience, right? And so they again said to me, you know, um, <clears throat> I know I'm going all over the place, but it's it's. Oh, uh, no, I just no, want to. Here's the thing. Blue was the one when I started acting. Gave me some of the best advice ever that mm-hmm. I use all the time, and it's terrible again that we have to teach young black men these things, and we have to adapt our tone, our presence, our physicality in order Mm. to blend in. But Blue said to me, when you go into the audition room, Charles, 
always walk in with a smile on your face so you can disarm them because they have preconceived notions of what a black man is going to be and they expect you to be the angry black man hmm. so he goes you have to disarm them and he goes you're a very big guy i'm six feet tall 200 mm -hmm. pounds i'm a big guy i've always been a big guy um, <clears throat> and i said but why he goes just trust me you go in with a smile on your face he goes because if you come in without a smile on your face they look at you and you you look like you might be angry and that's their expectation so you have to disarm them. Wow. okay and then he talked to me because you know when i started acting i was a teenager my very you know, my first real big role prior, I'd done some background work, I'd done commercials and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I got I got booked. <clears throat> the first big role I got was on the pilot of a TV show called Twenty One Jump Street, mm -hmm. and I was I, I played played a character on there named um, Ray Ray, and he was a gangster. Right, my friend Reginald T. Dorsey and I, Reginalds from from Texas, were the, the original bad guys on Twenty One Jump Street. Mm. Interestingly enough, when I went into audition for that role, you go, you know, you work in, in theater, so you probably understand this. Usually, there's some some icebreaker chit chat before you actually do your read. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in there, so I, you know, they tell me about yourself, and we're talking. And one of the one of the producers sitting there said to me. You know, Charles, if I close my eyes and listen to you, you don't sound black. I'm not sure you'll be able to do this role. What? <laughs> you sound like you're a product of a prep school. You speak so well. <laughs> that, like, that's, that, oh my goodness. I just feel so, because, like, what is that? So exactly. a black man cannot be educated? Cannot exactly. speak you know, like he knows what he's talking about? Like Nope. And that's why I said, so I just said, you know, I looked at her and I said, that's just how I sound. But, you know, can I do the read? And then I switched because Blue had told me mm -hmm. most of the roles we're going to get, they're, they're American shows. So you have to sound American. American. You have to lose your Canadian accent. And I, mm -hmm. again, grew up code switching. I can sound mm -hmm. West Indian. I can sound very, very white. Guess what? Yeah. I can do inner city American. So You've been acting all your life. Been acting my whole <laughs> life. Everything I do has been prepare, preparing me. And I also, I do say this all the time. Everything you're doing in life prepares you for the next thing you'll be doing in life. Yeah. And you have to be able to draw from it and adapt it. So, of course, I'd watch television. I'd seen, you know, so I fed them what they wanted. Hmm. And they hired me in the room. Whoa, said, that is yeah, awesome. And, and she said, she said, she said, that's surprising. I didn't know. <laughs> Right, oh, and I get said, out of and, here. yeah, and I said, I said that's what it's called. It's called acting, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah, it's what we do. So, so that you know, I was like, okay, but that was the thing. But again, Blue has said to me, you know, and Blue was good and giving guidance that way, and he's the one who said, you know, go take some acting classes, mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> and also gave me the advice to watch every show that's filmed in town so you understand the cadence and the rhythm of the show mm -hmm. so that you can give them what they want. And here's an interesting yeah. story. And I'm going all over the place, but here's an interesting story is me adapting in life and relying on not just my father for guidance, but other black males mm -hmm. who were older than me who provided mentorship yeah. and guidance to me. And so I'm 
one of maybe five act, black actors in my age group. We all knew each other in Vancouver. This is back in Vancouver still. We all knew each other. We'd get the breakdowns for 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 a, an audition, and um, we'd we'd basically, you know, I'd be like, oh no, this this one's not mine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I came up with uh, Adrian Adrian Holmes, Roger Cross, Richard Leacock, Vivian Leacock, myself. We were the five, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and they'd be like, hey, did you get that audition? I think this one's yours, man. As I read it, it seems more like you, right? That kind mm-hmm. of stuff, right? Yeah. So anyhow, I get an audition, and at the time. X-Files was the big show. Mm. Every actor wanted to be on, on the X-Files. X-Files. Yeah. I auditioned for the X-Files 12 times. Mm. Different roles. Mm-hmm. And I was at the point now, after the 10th or 11th audition, I was so angry that when my agent called me and said, I have an audition for you for X-Files, I said, no, I'm not going. Mm. I'm not being arrogant, but Jesus, they've seen me 10 times. Like yeah. if they don't know that I can bring it, they haven't hired me 10 times. I put in it and he said, no, no, you should go. And I said, oh, okay, fine. I'll go. Mm-hmm. Then I called, I called Blue up and I said, look, I got an audition for the X-Files. I don't want to go. He says, why not? I said, because I've auditioned for them 10 times and I can't hit. Mm-hmm. He goes, have you ever watched the show? I said, no. He goes, well, there's your first problem. Watch the show. Mm-hmm. And then he said, come see me. So I went to him and he helped me prep for the audition. Mm-hmm. And I would do it the way I prepped it. He said, no, bring it down. Nope bring it down. Nope, bring it down. He goes, did you watch the show? I said, yeah. Did you notice how David Duchovny d- d- delivers his lines? No matter what's going on around him, he kind of goes, wah, 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 wah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Blue helped me and I went into the audition room mm-hmm. and I thought I did what, what I considered the worst audition possible because it wasn't really acting. It was me just basically mumbling and throwing away my lines. Mm. And I got in, I did the audition. They thanked me. I got in my car, I'm driving home, and my phone rings, my cell phone rings, and uh, it's my agent. He goes, congratulations, you just booked your spot on the X-Files. I said, but Ross, that's the worst audition I ever did. He goes, well, they liked it. (laughs) Well, they liked it. Turns out, again, thanks to my mentors, my guidance, the people who the universe put in your path as you grow through life, Mm -hmm. Blue had said to me, watch every show and learn the rhythm and cadence of the show. Mm. The X-Files had its own cadence. Mm. didn't matter if you were standing in the middle of fire it was conversational and mm. i thought it was the worst thing possible but that's how i got. <laughs> but that's what got me booked and so i was again thank you to blue yeah. learn how to again learn how to adapt learn yeah. how to bring you <laughs> yeah that's amazing you know, so learn like, how to fit it so like what was it like transitioning from high school you said you became mm-hmm. a track star people started mm-hmm. to treat you differently and all that transitioning from that to university or college or what your next step was um okay yeah graduated high school at uh, age 17 primarily because a because I, I got bumped up a grade and b because my birthday's late in the year <laughs> right mm-hmm. um High school was different. High school, I was treated better. Mm. High school, I, I, I made a concerted effort not to become in a clique because as you well know, high school, there's little groups, right? Yeah. I blend, I worked within every group. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be labeled a nerd because I was smart. I didn't want to be labeled, you know, a, a, a jock because I played sports. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I, I kind of, 
tried to blend in everywhere and that worked out really well. A lot of different things had happened for me in that time period too. So I had to cycle you back. At the age of 13, my sister was um, modeling for Blanche McDonald. And I went with my mom one day to pick her up from a photo shoot. And I'm sitting at the in the agency. And this lady walks by and she looks at me. She didn't say anything. She walks by again. She looks at me. And she, and she came by a little while. And she looks at me. She goes, I don't know you. Are you one of ours? And I said, uh, no, my sister, I'm here with my mom to pick up my sister, Sheree. And she says, I think you should be. Wow. And so next thing I know, I'm in, a, I'm in her office with my mom. And guess what? Hey, I'm getting a modeling agent. <laughs> wow. I, I started modeling at the age of 13. As you know that, I said I'm six feet tall, but I was, I was six feet tall by 13. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I was tall. But modeling again had to expose me and treat and teach me adaptability mm-hmm. the racism was in your face in the modeling world it was different for me i had no idea what i was doing i would show up and so you know first thing you do is you know you have to go to a photographer and get some photos so mm-hmm. blanche mcdonald set me up with a photographer my parents paid for that had a portfolio some pictures and stuff and you, your model book and then you, you know, you go to modeling auditions. I was 13, 14, 15. Um, I would book stuff, but I wasn't booking print work or television stuff. But I was, you know, at an early age, I had what I call the Denzel Washington walk. <laughs> <laughs> I was good on a runway. And mm. so I booked a ton of fashion shows, mm. right? But I had two things happened while I was modeling for me. I had anxiety Mm. at an early age. And I had these dreams that I would have that I'd be up on the stage walking and somebody in the audience would say, why is he up there? And I had that dream so many times, the insecurity that was bred into me that twice as hard to get half as much. You're black, Mm -hmm. you're ugly. People don't like, so the fact that somebody thought I could be a model on the one hand was uplifting, but on the other hand, it created anxiety and distress for me. That imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. And it's also reinforced the imposter syndrome because like I said, the, the racism was in your face in the modeling world. I would go out for stuff like commercials and what have you, and I wouldn't book them. Mm-hmm. Or, or I'd go to, and they'd say, and I would ask my model agent, you know, what's going on? And she'd say, well, there's not a lot of black work, not a lot of work for black models, not a lot of print work for black models, not a lot of, right? And, you know, they'd say, well, you know, we don't know what to do with your hair or, you know, mm. or you, you know, in your face, well, his lips are too big or his skin is oh too dark. We're not going to know how to light him. And you're dealing with that and you're dealing with that and you're dealing with that. But then you'd book something and then you kind of let that go. But that was constantly there. And, you know, I hate to say it, but it was, you know, Late late 70s, early 80s, you know, black skin brothers, light skin brothers were in. I had I had a couple of black friends who were light skin. They were booking commercials and what have you. Me, not so much, <laughs> right? But the fashion shows, yes. And you know, I I I'm blessed. I got to travel across Canada doing the home shows and doing fashion shows. I got to right because I was good on the runway. And, mm. But again, I'm good enough to wear your clothes on the runway, but I'm not good enough to be in the magazines and they wanted oh light skin brothers for the magazines. Right? <laughs> well. Thank you to Wesley Snipes. I joke about this all the time, but Wesley Snipes came on the scene and all of a sudden black skin, dark skin brothers were getting a lot of play because Wesley was cool and everybody thought he was cool. And, and mm. oh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we want a Wesley Snipes type. <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. 
So yeah, then I started to get Hollywood kind of dictated all that. Yeah, and you know, representation. I mean, and diversity is all the play now, but back then it wasn't. You mm-hmm. know, there was there the only black model that I you know kind of looked up to was Tyson Beckford because he was dark like me and had big lips like I did, and he was working. Mm-hmm. So if he could do it, I could do it, kind of thing, yeah, right? So yeah. I kept I kept in the game because of that, and I did start to book some stuff. Like I said, I booked I booked some commercials, but it's always you walk into the room conscious of the fact that you're a dark-skinned black person mm-hmm. and i would go into these auditions sometimes thinking i don't know why i'm here because you know i look around i see all these light-skinned brothers and sisters and i know they're gonna book it and it ain't gonna be me <laughs> doesn't matter how good i am how talented i am how you know pretty i may look they're prettier because they're light-skinned so that that mm-hmm. weirdness was there for me Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you start to doubt yourself because, hey, you know, I'm not light skinned. I have big lips. I have, you know, this nappy hair. Mm -hmm. You get all of that you got to deal with. (laughs) Right. And Mm -hmm. that's colored. So to answer your question, you know, the transition. So when I started modeling again, I was I was good at track and field. I was in the written up in the papers a bit. People knew who I was. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, and I did book a few print stuff. And, you know, you open your Sunday flyer in the paper and, oh, there's a picture of Charles. Okay. Mm-hmm. That changed my life a little bit in that people started to know who I was and I would get different treatment than, you know. And so by the time I got to university, there were more Black people at the university. I went to Simon Fraser. There were more people in my group, in my circle that I, so the, the feeling displaced and out of sort kind of went away because I'd surrounded myself with other black people. Right. Mm -hmm. And learned a little bit about black culture and where, you know, where's my place in this black culture? How do I function as a black man? Because, Mm -hmm. and it used to frustrate me because it's like, why can't I just be a man? Oh yeah. (laughs) I always have to walk in the room and be a black man. And, as you know, I'm also a comedian. So I, mm-hmm. one of the jokes I talk about is I have a running joke that I do is that 99% of the time I will walk into a room and I will be the only black person in the room, mm-hmm. especially living where I live now, which is in Calgary. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of black people in Calgary. And so I, I usually do that as a joke on stage that, you know, I won the bet because I'm the only black person in the room. You guys mm-hmm. never disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how I, that's, I've learned that if you speak it and name it, you disarm it. So when I usually Mm -hmm. start my shows, I will say that I'm the only black person in the room. Matter of fact, I'm so comfortable being the only black person in the room that if another black person was to walk in, I'd be like, hey, hey, go away. (laughs) Token, token positions already taken. Already taken, yeah. These are my white people. Go get your own. (laughs) (laughs) And people think it's funny, but what I'm doing is I'm calling it out for what it is. Mm -hmm. And throwing it away because Mm -hmm. my experience being was I found that it didn't matter how smart I was or how talented I was or how athletic I was, Mm -hmm. I was always black. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, and I, I, I would say, I will walk into this place and it will take then in mentally a clock will start to count down in my head how long it takes before somebody points out to me that I am other. Hmm. And it happens. And you go, why can't I just walk into a room and be a man hmm. or a human being? Why 
must it always be you're black and with that comes all the stereotypes and all the crap that they seen on you know music videos or on television because there was mm -hmm. a period there where the way we were represented in the media was was foreign to how I existed as an individual yeah. and I'll give you the perfect example of this I told you we were literally you know, for all intents and purposes my sisters and I were raised white mm -hmm. we were raised to assimilate mm -hmm. when the Cosby show came out there was all this brouhaha about, well, you know, that's not how black people live. That's not realistic to black people, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, my sister and I were like, well, that's how we live. But that's how we live. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Right? But even black people were like, well, at first the Cosby show wasn't realistic. And I'm like, but um, that's kind of how we live. I was so happy to see people not only that look like me, but spoke like me and mm -hmm. conducted themselves like me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, so it is possible to not, as an actor, to play a role that's more germane to who I am and closer yeah. to who I am. Yeah. So I decided to throw everything away. So he said, you know, when I was in university and, and going out in the business world and what have you, I would just throw it all away i'm just gonna be me in the room mm -hmm. and you can take it or leave it yeah and if you point out to me that i'm other i will call you on it mm -hmm. <laughs> because in the business world as well as in the entertainment world i ran into it and i thought you i literally and i don't want to rule but it's forced upon me and my father did tell me this i have to be an ambassador for my people yeah that's just too heavy a weight for anyone Yes. <laughs> too heavy. Right? Yeah. It's too heavy, but you, you, you feel, and I talked to other black actors and about this and they said, yes, you're right, Charles. That's how I feel too. I walk into the room and I have to be an ambassador for my people and yeah, I have to help this the entire race. And I have to dispel the stereotypes and the mythology and say, you know what? We come in all shapes and sizes. We come in all variety of personalities. We are not, you know, necessarily, the stereotypes that you have of black people, that's not necessarily true, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes, yeah. like every culture has their bad elements and their good elements, but you mm -hmm. guys seem to think that in the black culture, there's only bad elements. Yeah. Right? No. Yeah. And people would say, oh, in a, and you still run into it and you kind of go, oh my God, seriously, it's the 21st century. We still dealing with this. Oh, you speak so well. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I get that. Or, you know, Charles, you, you're not at all like I was expecting. What were you expecting? <laughs> truly like i get people that say oh you're from nigeria your english is mm -hmm. so good well english, yes english is our I first that all language the we were colonized I, I by the british yes me too i was raised british right you know? i grew up in a british colony so yeah we you know we dress we, speak we dress we speak english very well we dress we speak, well yeah we speak the king's english <laughs> i mean yeah exactly <laughs> but i get that a lot and then when i can switch into different accents and what have you and you know i can sound nigerian if i need to i can sound intercity american i need to i can sound british that's called acting yes yes <laughs> you know or you know or I, I remember one time I, I, I had a client, this was in, in when I was in enterprise sales and I was I started my enterprise sales career in advertising. And I had a client in in, um, in the US and he said to me one day, you know what, we've been we do a lot of business with you guys, but I've never met you. When are you coming down to visit our office? So I said, Okay. Went to my boss, I said, you know, 
big client says, I, I haven't come to visit him. He goes, why are you still talking to me? Book a flight, go. <laughs> right. So, right. So I, so I fly to Chicago and I'm waiting in the, in the, you know, in the reception area of their office building and he comes out and he's, there's, there's three other salespeople there. They're white and me. And he comes out and he says, Charles. And he walks towards the white guy. And I said, no, no, I stood up and I shook hands and said, Hey, you know, and he goes, my God, I've been talking to you on the phone for how many years? I had no idea you were black. That's how our meeting started. And I was like, oh. seriously? <laughs> wow. That is crazy. That like, that was embarrassing for him. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh no, it gets better. It gets better. So um, we go back into the boardroom and he's got a bunch of his uh, leadership people there. Cause these guys did millions of dollars in business with us annually. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, and so I'm going on around the room, introducing myself mm-hmm. and shaking hands. And I guarantee you, there were seven people in the room. Four out of the seven tried to give me what I call the brother handshake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. God bless him. I know what you're trying to do here. You've seen it on TV. You think, hey, black guy, this is how I see black people shaking oh, hands. I'm like, no, this is a business environment, my friend. Web to web, pump, pump, release, let go. Not yeah. this handshake that I don't know what you're doing. It's embarrassing oh, for both of us. <laughs> oh, and that, again, is the 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 subconscious way that they don't even realize by doing that they think they're being nice or trying to you know demonstrate that they understand your culture but what they're doing is pointing out that you are other yeah it's like <laughs> it's like blatant racist it's a macro aggression like that yeah. is not even undercover just treat me like another man because you know the other thing too is i had a colleague with me who was white and i noticed as he was going around shaking hands they shook his hand normally <laughs> so then oh man yeah you know but that's the kind of thing that you you kind of get used to mm-hmm. even though you shouldn't and you you roll with it and i've seen it a lot in both in 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 because i i always lived parallel tracks i had a, i had a day job in the enterprise business world and then i was mm-hmm. an actor and a model and then i became a comedian so i'm living mm-hmm. what i call my 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 arts persona and then my business persona Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah. finding finding a way to blend the two because literally sales is really just it's 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 performance art. Mm-hmm. You write a script, you prep, you prep it in your head, you do a presentation, you play a role. Yeah. Acting is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, people say, "Well, you're very successful. Why are you such a good salesperson?" I said, "Because it's acting. It's, it's acting. It's presentation. Yeah. It's public speaking. I'm yeah. really good at that." Right, yeah. it's disarming people with stories and making them laugh. Right, mm-hmm. you you learn the skills that work in both worlds, and you just adapt. Right? Yeah, we are masters of adaptation. I jokingly say I've been a chameleon my whole life. Hmm. Whatever whatever room I'm in, whatever you know, the expectation is I can adapt and present. The only mm-hmm. problem with that is defining for yourself who you are. Who's the real you? Mm. Right, and I know a lot of black people have that issue who is the real you and are you bringing the real authentic you into the room right yeah so the positive of that sarah is that um i like to think that in my in my acting i've cultivated a persona Mm -hmm. that has worked for me i'm the this is genuine this is who i am Mm -hmm. why can't i be the educated black man Mm. so if you look at my my acting resume, 
when I started out, I played a lot of gangsters. I was a teenager, so that's those were the roles, delinquents, blah, 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 blah. Then I got to be about 22, and I was too old necessarily to play teenagers, but not quite old enough to play adult roles. I went through a three-year period where I couldn't buy an audition. <laughs> My agent would say, no, Charles, you're just not old enough, or you're too old. And, that, and then I got... I booked a role <clears throat> as a policeman. I was Oakland. And I kind of went, you know what? I like the dialogue in this. Mm-hmm. I, can, I, can, I can represent this. And then I said to my agent, I said, you know, that's, that's the path I want to go down. Mm-hmm. So I played lawyer, doctor, pastor, minister, um, teacher, professor. That's my resume from the time Amazing. I was about 25 or so. Those are the roles that I just that he said, these roles, and I'm not being I'm not being arrogant or snobby, there's where I'm comfortable. Because yeah. I could use my own voice. Yeah. And I could show up and sound like me. Because yes, I am university educated, so I understand these people. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because as an actor, I look for what what common ground do I have with the character? Where do we where do our lives intersect, right? Yes. And I look for the humanity and then it's not about, and also a lot of times I would go for auditions and I'd be the only black person auditioning for the role. And it's, mm-hmm. it would, it would clearly say, you know, Caucasian. Now they say, now they say any ethnicity, but back yeah. then, and my agent would say, and I'd say, I'd say, well, you know, why am I going out for this? It's, and he says, no, no, they asked to see you. Okay. And I, he said, maybe they're looking for, for options. Mm-hmm. And but I'd sometimes I'd go in and be a whole bunch of white actors and me and I'm like, why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so you know, and then occasionally you'd get one where the the role was for a black person. You'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah. you know, I, I take pride in the fact that you know I think, like I said, you have to be an ambassador for your people, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not, you are. Yeah. Because they don't have any knowledge of, they haven't, like I said, we have them at a disadvantage because we've had to learn their culture and their way of doing things in order for us to fit in and adapt. But they don't know anything about us because because when you're the when you're the majority, why do you need to learn about the minority? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 100%. you learn you learn to adapt. You learn how to go. So that's that's you know. So yeah, I think. It is so interesting when I meet and talk to other black people, how much of our stories, I, my story is not unique. We all seem mm-hmm. to walk down the same path. We all the seem same. to, we came to this, to a, a foreign land and had to learn to adapt and fit in. We came and went, oh, this is what I need to do in order for this to work. Oh, <laughs> yes, right? yes. And we, we learned how to do it. And then we, we bounce back and forth because, you know, we all say the same thing. When I'm around my people, I feel comfortable and I can be myself. Mm-hmm. But when I'm out there in the world, it's almost a struggle to bring you in the room and bring who you are and your history and, you know, and, and do it without shame. Do it without yeah. fear of rejection. It took me yes. a long time to learn that. Yeah, and like a big thing for me, I didn't like the humor here is so different. 
that when mm-hmm. I move to Canada, like things people will laugh heartily about, I will be looking clueless. Like that was funny, yeah. you know. <laughs> so that was one of the like uh, things. Even with the whole like we talked about code switching a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. where you have to like refine your accent and sit up a bit straighter in your chair, and mm-hmm. you know, like adapt yep. and assimilate depending on the room that you're in. Um, for me, humor was just one of those things that up till now, I think I'm still trying to get like get a grasp on because like Canadian humor is very, very different from Nigerian hu- humor, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like and <laughs> the use of sarcasm is different. The, the way that like it's just so different. So like, you know, even part of the code switching and meeting in those rooms is like when just laugh when you see other people laughing. laughing. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Laugh when you see everyone else laughing and you know, sometimes if it just goes on too long, just have a smile on your face and just yep, and wait it out and yeah. nod. Oh my goodness, the nodding, you know, and uh, you know, just assimilating and adapting hundred mm-hmm. percent. That's it. That literally that's is it. it. And yeah, now in addition to everything else, you're a motivational speaker. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? How you got yes. into that? Um I started that um, came about through my my sales and business side of the world. Every year, when the companies I worked for would bring in different speakers, mm. you know, like like the Brian Tracys of the world, and they brought a guy in named Ross Buchanan, who I would watch him, and he became like he was a sales trainer and a motivational speaker, and we do our big sales kickoff, and Ross would come and do some training, do talk, and I would literally be sitting in the back of the room going, I could do this. Hmm. Right. So at the time, I'm not even really paying attention. I'm watching what he's doing because I'm a performer. I watch it. I I say I'm a chameleon, and I'm I'm also. I will freely admit I'm the world's biggest thief. <laughs> if I see you doing something that I think is positive, I want to adapt that and assimilate that into my life. And hmm. I'm fearless in the sense that. So what I did was, <clears throat> after a number of, I got to be friendly with Ross, and I called him up one day and I said, "Can I buy you lunch?" And he said, sure. So we went for lunch. And I said, Ross, I want to do what you do. Hmm. And he laughed. And he said, Charles, you know, you're probably better qualified to do what I do than, than I am. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're an actor. Because he knew about me. He goes, you're an actor. You're, you're, you, you're university educated. And you've been in the sales and business world for a number of years. He goes, wow. I've just come up in the sales and business world. Wow. Right? He goes, so Ross kind of took me under his wing and kind of he encouraged me and said, yeah, you could probably do this. And so I started to do some research again. Books have saved my life. So motivational speaking, where do I go? How does this work? What do I do? Storytelling, how do I do this? And immersed myself in, in learning. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my sister, who is a, a journalist and a lawyer, was working for this company. And I said to her, you know, I want to start doing this. I want to do the sales training and what have you. And she said, oh, let me get back to you. And she said, so she went and talked to her boss because her boss brings people in all the time too, right? And she said, um, yeah, my boss would like to meet you and have a conversation with you and maybe have you come in and do some sales training for us. I, of course, I'm panicking now because I have no idea what I'm doing. So I went in and met with him and I kind of asked him what his goals were, what he wanted to do. I basically sold him. I went in as a salesperson and said, you know, tell me what your goals are. Tell me what, you know, what you're trying to achieve, blah, 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 sales, sales, salesmanship 101, he told me. And, I, and then I went home and wrote it, researched and wrote it, researched mm-hmm. and wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I went and did my first presentation. I didn't charge enough. Went and for did my first one. I loved it because again, it's just performance art. Mm-hmm. It really is. I'm a storyteller, mm-hmm. and um, 
and I asked him, I said, um, what I would like from you, if you like it, is I'd like a reference letter that I can put on my, on my website and put in my portfolio to tell other people. And he said, absolutely. So I did it and he gave me the reference letter. That was my first business of running your own business on your own. The first lesson I learned, right, mm-hmm. is that, you know, references are great. So he yes. gave me one. And then um, I was like, oh, okay. And then they liked my story. They liked my me. It was anecdotal stories of my life as a salesperson and my life as an actor and overcoming hurdles and obstacles. And that's what I talk about. You know, all of my talks are about resiliency and adaptability because that's my story, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that. So at the time I was, I was still working for the advertising company and I'd been working really hard mm-hmm. for them and I've been with them for a number of years, but I wasn't enjoying it as much anymore. So I went to the, to, and I said, you know, I told my boss that I was going to quit and he didn't want me to quit. Mm-hmm. So he says, why don't you take a leave of absence? So they gave me a three month paid leave of absence because they didn't want to lose me. And in those three months, I built out my company, Island Boy Productions and Communications. Mm-hmm. And started and started researching and learning and and I asked Ross and he says, well, here's you know he goes, you need to write a book or you need to write stuff and submit it to newspapers and and have your stuff be published, and then people will know your name and you have reference articles. So I didn't write a book. I chose the path of right writing editorials and sending it into mm-hmm. newspapers and they publish it and they did. And at the bottom of it, it would be, you know, Charles Payne is an actor, comedian, motivational speaker. He can be reached at here and here's his website. Yeah. Free advertising. Wow. (laughs) And so I started to book stuff. And yeah, I'll tell you real quick. It's a funny story about it. I started to book speaking engagements and and sales training engagements. And so after the three months was up, I went back to the company and I said, they're like, are you coming back? I said, no. I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to. Here's what I'm going to do. And I thank you very much. And this is great. And for a seven-year period, I had my own company. I worked for myself. Wow. That was hard. Oh, it was yeah. A, it was a steep, 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 steep learning curve. I mean, I was still acting and doing stuff on the side. And that kept me financially afloat. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then learning how to do this. But here's the thing. So I started booking stuff. And I was talking to another guy that I know. He's also a comedian. He has similar background to me. Comedian, worked in sales, also has a degree in psychology. And his hook is he does, you know, I'm, I'm, what does he say? I'm, I'm funny, but you need, you need, you need professional help. Something like that. But anyhow, mm-hmm. I called him up because again, fearless. If you're doing something that I want to do, I'm not going to envy you for it. I'm going to come and say, hey, how did you get there? I'm, mm-hmm. I always will ask, how did you get there? I want to do what you're doing. Can you school me on your path? I mean, you know, here's what I'm doing. And I reached out to him. I said, I said, I said I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do what it is you do. You seem to be very successful at it. I got to ask you a question because I don't know what the market will bear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm charging enough. Mm-hmm. And he told me, and he said, he said, well, tell me what you're charging. I said, well, you know, for a session, I'm doing this. And he laughed. And he said, Charles, multiply that number by five. You're not charging enough. He goes, if you sell it too cheap, they won't, they won't buy it. Hmm. And he, so he told me what he was charging. I mean, I just about fell out of my chair. Wow. So the very next opportunity I got, fortunately, a couple of days later, a lady called me 
and she'd, she'd read an article I'd written and submitted and blah, blah. And she said, I'd love for you to come in and do some sales training. We're doing our big sales kickoff. And I thought, okay. She goes, so can you send me a proposal with your pricing? And I was like, okay. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take Dave's advice. I'm going to take my price and multiply it by five and send it to her. Thinking, well, if I don't get it, I'll know that, you know, it's not worth it. I sent it to her. And within five minutes of me signing, sending it to her with the contract, it back in my inbox signed. I just about fell out of my chair again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And I went and I did that. And I was like, oh, okay. And here's the thing. At this particular one, I'll tell you, I also learned a lot then too, because I'm always observing and trying to adapt and assimilate. The keynote speaker at that particular function was Silken Laman. And she gave a speech for 45 minutes over lunch. And I was doing a morning session and an afternoon session. Mm-hmm. And I thought my price was high. When I found out what they paid Silken Lawman for 40, I mean, big mind you, she's a Canadian hero. If you don't know who she is, she's a canoeist, a gold medalist, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh my God, like that's what you could make as a speaker? Wow. Mm-hmm. I need to be there. <laughs> Yeah. So I again I went back to the drawing board and said okay. And the only thing that I I don't have that some of these other speakers have is they've written a book. Mm. I don't have a book written. So and I'm still working on that. I'm actually right in the middle of writing a book right now. But Amazing. I've been doing this on and off for a while. I've been very mm-hmm. fortunate um, through word of mouth. And but I did that for seven years. But the reason I shut it down is um, twofold. I kept having conflicts with book and acting gigs and I'd already book a speaking gig and I had to choose which one to do. That's mm-hmm. one. Two, I was married with children. And when you're your own company, you don't have medical and dental and all those wonderful things. And you're literally the, you know, the, you're the CEO, but you're also the secretary and the janitor and the marketing mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of work. It's very a exhausting. Yes. But again, very fortunate in that one of my clients that I went to give a presentation to that had hired me, their, the president in the company was in the audience. And she said after me, she came up to me at lunchtime, said, let's go have lunch. Because usually I bring lunch. And she goes, no, no, let's you and I go. There's a restaurant down the street. Let's go have lunch. We had lunch. We're talking. And she goes, I need someone with your background and your sales skills to come and be our sales leader. Wow. And I said, oh. I said, well, you know, I work for my son. She goes, I know. But let me, she says, if you're interested, I'll put together a proposal package for it. She sent it to me. And what, what, what drew me was the medical and dental and the insurance and all mm-hmm. that stuff was there. Mm-hmm. And the salary they were offering me was more than I was making annually mm-hmm. working for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I shut down my company and went back into the business world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But. I still would get calls occasionally from people who'd say, hey, we'd love for you to, you know, we remembered you did this and or somebody gave us your name. And I so I, I still do it, mm-hmm. still continue to do it. But I didn't I just it's just one more track for me. So yeah. actor, writer, comedian, motivational speaker. Yes, I do it all. Yeah. And and I continue to do it all. And I'll tell you why real quick. When I first started to get into the acting world. I had an agent at the time who gave me the best advice and it was augmented by advice from my sister because people say to me, how do you manage to juggle them both? How do you manage to do all the things you do and juggle it and still have a day job and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. When I, when I got 
a really good agent. Mm-hmm. He said to me, do you have a day job? And I said, yes. Is it one that you can walk away from at a moment's notice? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, good. I said, I work in sales. He goes, good. He goes, because you're going to work as an actor and then there'll be periods of time when you won't work. Mm-hmm. And so you need to back it up with something else. I always tell my people. And he goes, the other piece of advice I give you is this. When you work as an actor and you get paid, take a chunk of that and put it away for savings. That'll cover you in the dry period when you're not working. Mm-hmm. And if you have a day job to augment that, that's great. But get one that has flexibility. And I said, well, sales has so much flexibility. Mm-hmm. I pretty much work from home. Way before working from home was a thing. Yeah. Call my own hours and book my own schedule. Right? Mm-hmm. Book my own meetings. So I just have an audition, plug it in go to the audition, go back to work. Yeah. None the wiser. And then my sister said to me, negotiate for as much vacation days as they will give you, even if it means that you take a lower set base salary. Mm-hmm. Because then when you book a gig, because seriously, as a Canadian actor, we're day players. We're not going to book anything that's going to be for an extended period of time. <laughs> right? The, the, the running joke in the acting world, I told you, I came up with five other black actors and we'd always joke about this. When when we book something, we talk to each other. The first thing, hey, I booked, did you book that Royce? I did. First thing they ask is, how many days? Yeah. <laughs> right? True. So, so. I would negotiate as much vacation time, even if it means, hey, you could pay me less on a base salary. And they, why do you want so much vacation time? I said, because I love to travel. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. <laughs> right. That's important to me. And then, so yeah, you take as much vacation time and then you use up your vacation time and you book a gig. And that's what I would do. Thank you to my sister for giving me that advice because it worked. Yeah. <laughs> and that way I got to juggle both. I got to be and I still did it up until now, though. As of September, I'm uh, semi-retired. Mm. What that means is I've walked away from the corporate world. And okay. all I do now is I'm an actor, I'm a comedian, mm-hmm. and I do the motivational speaking. And I actually go and talk to high schools a lot. And I'll tell you how that came about real quick. I know we have to wrap this up fairly soon here. Yeah. Okay, real quick. So I had a movie come out last yeah last year called uh, left behind rise of the antichrist it's a very it's a religious based movie but i'm one of the leads in the movie and i also narrate the movie mm-hmm. and i got some again the universe provides you i have a really good friend who said to me he's also an actor and a producer and we've worked together on, on stuff and he said don't make the mistake i made charles and let the studio do all the publicity for you hmm. he says hire your own publicist I'm like, oh, okay. So he gave me a name, a couple names of publicists he's used before, and I reached out to them, hired a publicist, and she did an amazing job. I was on, I was on CTV News. I was in the National Post. I was, you know, and she booked me podcasts and and wow. webinars and blah 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 blah. So as it so happens, one of my wife's friends lives up the street from us. You know, I didn't know they were that close, but anyhow, she happened to be watching the CTV news at noon and there I was being interviewed on CTV news. And she, so she came to my wife and said, how come I don't know that Charles do all, does all of this? And she always mm-hmm. said, Charles doesn't talk about that part of his life. He just does things. Mm-hmm. She's a, she's a, she was a vice principal at a, at a school. I would love for him to come and talk to the students at our school. Wow. And long story short, I went and did did it for her. I did it for free for her because my wife said, you know, you're giving her a friend and family deal. You're doing it for free. Okay, fine. I did it. (laughs) I'm glad I did. I'm glad I took her advice and went and did it because she liked it so much that she sent an email out to a whole bunch of 
other schools principals and said you guys should book this guy to come in and so then my phone and my email started lighting up with all these school principals saying hey why don't you come talk to our student and now it's one of the things that i do i go and talk to schools and i get paid for it. <laughs> so you know um mm-hmm. again the universe gives you what you need when you need it and the people that you know everything you do in life prepares you for the next yes. thing you're going to be doing in life so um taking advice from from my friend who said get your own publicist who did put my name out there and there we were so all right i know i rambled on long and long (laughs) no thank you so much charles this has been amazing before you (laughs) go i want you Mm -hmm. to just drop a gem a word of wisdom something that someone an advice someone told you that you've held on to um but something that has kind of carried you uh on your path or you know giving you courage on your path oh the, the motto that I live by is two things. Every year I, I pick a word that will define how I'm going to live that year. This year's word was fear less. Mm. Go out in the world, open to the possibility that you might be wrong. And what I mean by that is that everything we hold dear and true in our belief system may not be accurate. It may be accurate for the time, but it may not be accurate. But if you go in the world with the open to the possibility that you might be wrong, you're open to learning and growing. Yes. So, and be fearless. And the other thing I do is I I say yes. Mm. People always say, well, why do you do this? How can, how can you do so many things? I said, because I always put my hand up and say, people say, why me? I say, why not me? Why not? Exactly. <laughs> why uh, not me? Why not Say you? yes. And, yeah. you know, if you've never failed in life, you haven't tried. You haven't tried, so exactly. Put, put your hand up. And say, yes, Charles, do you want to, you know, do this? Yes, Charles, you, yes, I will go and try anything because it helps you grow. Amazing. Thank you again, Charles, for sharing your story, your amazing story and your wisdom <laughs> with us. This has been awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Yes. And please let the people know where they can find you on the Internet, on social media and places. Social like media. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, although my 15-year-old son says Facebook is for old people. So you can find me on Instagram. I do have a TikTok account as well, all under Charles Andrew Payne. Mm-hmm. Um, I do post mostly now on Instagram since my social media director has said that's where I should be posting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but do, you know, and um, I have comedy shows that come in, so you'll find those posted on there. Um, I have um, a couple of movies coming out. You'll find information on there posted about Amazing. that as well. Yes. Awesome. Thank you again, Charles. You're welcome. Our listeners, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Afros in the Diaspora. I hope this episode left you feeling inspired and hopeful. To engage, feel free to like, follow, share, and subscribe to Afros in the Diaspora on all social media and podcast platforms. Remember to leave a review and a rating. If you would like to be a guest, please reach out. Send an email to hi at afrosinthediaspora.com. That is hi at afrosinthediaspora.com. Or send us a DM on Instagram at afrosinthediaspora. Remember, there is beauty in our stories and power in our voices. Together, we are stronger. Until next time.